Today's scripture is from Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, and chapter 23, 50 through 53. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And then Luke twenty three fifty through 53. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plans and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Thanks, Rob. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. How are you doing this Christmas season? <laughs> you know, it can be uh, pretty stressful, right? Just because there's a lot going on and schedules change and you have to buy presents and, you know, we get caught up in the stress and the craziness. For some of us, it's a very lonely time because we're missing loved ones or families far away. It can be hard, but we as Christians know the real purpose and the real meaning of Christmas, right? We know what the real point is. It's Jesus's birth. Or is it? Hmm. (laughs) I want to share with you this morning just some thoughts I've had about the whole Christmas story Maybe to take us a, a little different place than we often go at Christmas time. It's interesting that as you think about the Christmas story, we, we make a big deal about it as Christians. Jesus came to earth and he was born, but it's very interesting to me that the New Testament doesn't make that big a deal about it. Two of the gospel writers don't even mention it Mark and John. And the two that do, Matthew and Luke, have it at the beginning and don't have a lot of material. Luke a little more than Matthew, but both of them spend a lot more time on other aspects of Jesus's life than his birth. And certainly spend a lot more time on his death. So if that's the case, what is the point of Jesus's birth beyond a nice heartwarming story of A baby being born. You know, as I've wrestled with that and as I've read through the Gospels over and over again over the years, I've just had questions about that and and I've thought a lot about that. And I've wondered what what is the point of Matthew and Luke and why they include it and what what they're trying to teach us and what God's trying to teach us through their birth stories, their birth narratives. And what I've come to see is that the birth stories actually are like signposts. They're foreshadowings. And in fact, the way they're written and the way they're designed by Matthew and Luke are actually designed to point us to Jesus's death. There are so many parallels, if you take time to look, between his birth and his death that 
remind us over and over again that I think Luke and Matthew are trying to get us to, every time we read the birth narratives, to be reminded over and over again why Jesus really came. I mean, he came for several reasons, right? I mean, he came to show us the Father, we're told. He came to reveal what it is like for us to be people who really trust God as human beings. He came to train the disciples to establish the early church. Those are all true. But it seems to me, as I've read the Gospels, that the main point is pointing us to God's heart for reconciliation. That Jesus was actually born to die from the beginning. And that God so loves us that he sent Jesus ultimately because he wanted to reconcile us through his death so that we might have intimacy with the creator of the universe. Why is this important to see that Jesus was born to die, that the birth narratives really point us to his death? Well, I think it's because, at least partially, if we are Jesus followers, then our lives are to be shaped by Jesus' life. And if he was born to die, then so are we. And the shape of our life should reflect Jesus's life as we learn to die for his sake. But we'll talk about that more later. First, I want to point out seven different parallels between that Matthew and Luke make. They've painted into their portrait of Jesus to point us to his death as they write the birth narratives. And then we'll talk about what it means for us today. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, your word is amazing, and it's amazing that you took human beings like Matthew and Luke, and you taught them and you wrote through them to give us the exact scriptures you wanted us to have in our hands to read and to study. And thank you for the incredible depth. The more we look, the deeper we can go with you. May we be people who are people of the word. But more than that, may we be people who trust you and who follow you as followers of Jesus. May we live out the gospel in our daily lives. Teach us now from your word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So seven parallels I want to highlight between the birth narratives and the death and resurrection narratives. The first one I want to highlight is that in both his birth and his death, Jesus came from Galilee to a cave in the city of David. From Galilee to a cave in the city of David. Let me highlight. Again, we've, we've just read about Jesus' birth in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Let me read it again. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he's of the house and family of David. And we know that he was born, as we're told, in a, well, we're not told, are we? All it says is that he was laid in a manger. And we think of a stable, right? Because that's medieval painters in a barn kind of picture, and that's what we see. But actually, if you go to Israel, they didn't have those kinds of structures. They didn't have a lot of wood. So the traditional place Jesus was born is what? A cave. He was born in a cave, came from Galilee to a city of David, it says, the city of David, to be born 
in a cave. It's actually interesting to me that this is the only passage that Bethlehem is called the city of David. Throughout the whole Old Testament, a whole other city is called the city of David. Which one is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So in his birth, he came from Galilee to be born in a cave. In his death, he came from Galilee to be buried in a cave in what's called the city of David, Jerusalem. Interesting parallel. Let me read just a couple of verses. Luke 9, verse 51. As Jesus te- or as, uh, Luke teaches us about this, Luke verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He left Galilee and he headed to Jerusalem. In chapter 23, verse 50 and 50, 50 to 53, it says this, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain in the city of David. Just an interesting parallel that Luke wrote into the story. Secondly, in both his birth and his death, a King Herod was opposed to Jesus in both his birth and his death. Matthew tells us about his birth, chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1 and following, where he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has, born, has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And over in verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. In Jesus' birth, a king Herod, the great Herod the Great, we're told, tried to kill Jesus. In Jesus' death, Herod The son of King Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, was out to kill him as well. Again, in Luke chapter 23, verse 11 and following, it says, Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Again, interesting how Matthew and Luke have written this into the story of how a King Herod was opposed to Jesus trying to kill him in both his birth and his death. Third parallel I want to highlight is that in both his birth and his death, Jesus was rejected by those closest to him. Again, in the story in Luke that we've read, verse chapter 2, verse 4 follow, and following, where Joseph had to leave Nazareth and walk with Mary down to Bethlehem because of the census. But it's interesting to me that all indications are that they went alone. Now, wait a minute. They were part of a family in Nazareth. Typically, they would all travel together as a family. And then he had family in Bethlehem that they were going to meet with. 
for the census, and yet none of them took him in. And then when they tried to find room in the inn, they couldn't. There was no room. Why did they have to go alone? Well, because clearly they were rejected by their own family, by those closest to them. Why? Because Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. And in a shame-based culture, there is nothing worse than shaming the family. And if you shame the family, you are anathema. You are nothing to the family. So in Jesus' birth, the family was rejected by their, those closest to them. There had to be tremendous heartache and pain for Mary and Joseph as they had to travel alone and give birth alone in a cave. In his death, Jesus was rejected by all those closest to him. He poured his life into the disciples. And what happened? Peter denied him three times. Jesus looked at him and Peter wept. All the disciples fled and ran away because they were afraid for their own lives. And in fact, Jesus came out of love for his whole, the people of God, the people of Israel. And we're told in chapter 23, verse 18 and following when he was under trial, they all cried out together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Jesus was rejected by those very people he came to save. In both his birth and his death, Jesus was rejected by those closest to him. Parallel number four. In both his birth and his death, Jesus suffered under the political power structures of the day. Jesus suffered under the political power structures of the day. Again, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited world. You see, a census was a very oppressive measure in a country like Israel. Why? Because you had to leave your crops, leave your job, leave everything. Who knows who might take it? You had to all go to your home of origin, whatever town that was, and be counted and be taxed so that the oppressive Roman government could take all the taxes from you they could. And of course, later when Herod tried to kill Jesus, killed all the babies in the area of Bethlehem, the political powers of the day, Herod, were out to destroy him. You see, in his birth, Jesus suffered under the political structures of the day. And, of course, we know in his death he did as well. As he was rejected by the Pharisees, by the religious authorities, turned over to the Roman authorities, the political power who tortured and killed him. In chapter 22 of Luke, verse 63, just a description. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. In death, Jesus was tortured by the religious and civil authorities, eventually crucified by the Romans at the insistence of the religious leaders. In both his birth and his death, Jesus was oppressed by the political power and structures 
of his day. And again, I believe that Matthew and Luke purposely wrote these parallels into their stories. Number five, in both his birth and his death, Jesus was, a, was helpless and vulnerable. And my, interestingly, was wrapped in cloths and laid on a bed of stone. In both his birth and his death, Jesus was vulnerable and helpless and wrapped in cloths and laid on a bed of stone. I I don't know about you, but I've always kind of wondered about the details of the birth of Jesus and why it says that Mary gave birth and then she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. I mean, wouldn't every baby be wrapped in swaddling clothes? Why is that detail there? But when you begin to look at the parallels, you begin to see that it's a parallel with his death. I want to show you a picture of what the manger would have looked like. You know, we have an idea, again, that would be a wooden manger, but they didn't have a lot of wood. And this is the kind of mangers we have found from Jesus' day. They were cut out of stone and the hay was put in there and it's a feeding trough. Stone, feeding trough. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid on a bed of stone in his birth. Now I want to show you a picture of his death in the tomb where he was wrapped in linen, his body wrapped in linen and laid on a bed of stone. And we could talk about a lot of other parallels too. Who was there at his birth when he was laid in the manger? Mary and Joseph. If you think about the stories of his death, who was there when he was laid in his tomb? Matthew and Luke make it very clear that Joseph, another Joseph of Arimathea, took his body and laid it there. And that sitting across from the tomb at that point was Mary, a different Mary, probably. We aren't exactly sure. There was Mary Magdalene and another Mary But again, a Joseph and a Mary in each of the scenarios. You see, Luke and Matthew had a purpose in making all these parallels, in drawing out these particular points. Why? Because they want to point us from his birth to his death. Sixth parallel. In both his birth and resurrection, death and resurrection, it was a miracle announced by angels. Angels don't occur a whole lot in the scriptures as a whole, and certainly in the Gospels. But in his birth, it was announced to the shepherds by angels. Chapter 2 of Luke, verse 8. In the region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The miracle was announced by an angel. In his death, the resurrection was announced by an angel to Mary and to the others that were there in chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, They, the women, came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They were perplexed. Suddenly, two men stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, 
Same response as the shepherds, huh? And bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. In both his birth and resurrection, it was a miracle announced by angels where God himself broke into this natural world, sending angels to say this is significant. In fact, these are the two most significant events in all of history. I just want to highlight one more. I could go on and on. Believe me, there are so many parallels. But I want to highlight one more parallel between Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection. That in both his birth and death and resurrection, it was announced to the world by the angels first, but then by outcasts of society. Interesting that God chose that. In Luke 2.20, it says, after the angels came to the shepherds, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just had, as had been told them. Who were the shepherds in that first century culture? They were the lowlifes. They were the lowest of the low. They were dirty and smelly. They spent 24-7 with the sheep, which in that culture meant that they didn't have time to go to temple. They couldn't carry out the religious rites that they needed to for purification. And therefore, they were seen as complete rejects, cursed ultimately by God. And yet who got the message from the angels? And who were the first to proclaim the good news? Whom did God choose? It was shepherds. When Jesus had risen from the dead, well, first when he died, I want to highlight who proclaimed it first over in Luke 23, verse 47. After Jesus died, he cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Having, seen that, having said this, oh, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was righteous. He was the first one to proclaim the death of Jesus and that something miraculous had happened. A centurion. Now, a centurion, he was a man of privilege, right? Because he was a Roman officer, but he was hated as an enemy of Israel. He was considered a pagan who was rejected by God. And yet he was the first one to proclaim what had happened. And then in the resurrection, the, over in chapter 24, the angels came, of course, to the women the women were given the good news, and then they were to take it to the men. They remembered his words, chapter 24, verse 8, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. And how did the apostles respond? But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Why wouldn't they believe them? Well, partly because it was such a strange thing, but I believe primarily it's because they were women. <laughs> In that culture, women had no rights. They were essentially owned by their husbands, and they had 
They could not witness in a court of law. Their testimony was not considered to be legitimate or valid. But God, but God gave the good news about the resurrection to the women so that they could be the first witnesses of this incredible miracle. I don't know about you, but that really strikes me that God's heart is being revealed by whom he chose to reveal the good news to in both cases. That God's heart is to reconcile rebels, those with a past, those who are rejected by society, the outcasts of society. You may feel like an outcast. You may feel like a reject, but you are the very person that God brings the good news to and says, I want you to be intimate with me. I want you to experience this new life I've brought. And he's declaring it by whom he chose to give the good news to. So why did Matthew and Luke make all these parallels between Jesus's birth and death and resurrection? What's the message for us? Well, in one sense, they were both the two greatest events that have ever happened in history where God showed up, intervened in an incredible way by sending Jesus and by Jesus dying for us and then rising again. Both events amazingly reveal the Father's love, that he would send Jesus to be born and connect with us and to die for us, that we can be reconciled to God and have life with him. And he especially died for outcasts, for rascals, for rebels. And these parallels show that Jesus' birth points to his death over and over again, that when we read the Gospels, the narratives of the birth, we are to be reminded over and over again that Jesus came to die. He was born to die. So what does this mean for us today? Well, again, we should delight in the Father's heart of reconciliation, that he so longs for intimacy and life with us, relationship with us, that he was willing to go to such extreme ends that we might be reconciled despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our rejection. He did everything he could to call us home to him. And secondly, I think we should learn from this that we, too, as followers of Jesus, are meant to reflect him to the world, to walk in his footsteps, to die for him, that we, too, are born to die, and that the very life of God gets released into the world when we choose to die to self, to selfishness, to all those things that we tend in our humanity to live by. That just like the power of God was released into the world through Jesus being born to die, so it is for us. And as we carry our cross daily, even if it means the rejection like it did for Jesus, of our social worlds, of our family, of our political worlds, even our religious worlds, we're called to follow in his footsteps. We are called to die. What does that mean? What does it look like to die to self, to die to selfishness? Uh, I want to read some of a blog by Gary Thomas. He's talking specifically about marriage, but he has some good applications, and I think We can expand it beyond just marriage if you're not married. But he says this, Jesus tells us Christianity is all about taking up our cross daily. Paul says that he dies every day. When we remember we were born to die, 
Every day gives us an opportunity to die to selfishness, to personal demands, to self-centeredness, and even our own comfort. We die when we take a hit vocationally to serve our spouse and children over our career. And we say, I want to excel as a husband or wife more than I want to excel as an employee or business owner. When the two conflict, my spouse wins. We could say that even if you're not married, that God is going to win first and the people he's put in my life, I'm going to put above my career, my job, what makes me look good or successful. We die when we come home tired and seek to serve instead of be served. We die when we pray in the car on our way home. Lord, give me a second wind so I can give more to my spouse and kids than I gave to those at the office. We die when we figure out where our spouse is at in the evening and set our agenda accordingly. Does he or she need a night off? Do they need to get out of the house and do something fun? Do they need to vent? Or do they need help to forget something that's stressing them out? We die when our first thought in the morning and our recommitment in the evening is, Lord, how can I bless my family in the next few hours? And again, expand that beyond marriage. No matter who you're in contact with, Lord, how can I be a blessing to this person, whoever it might be? Is there someone you need me to call, somebody to visit? Some way I need to die to my own desires and my desire to just maybe veg out in front of the TV. And are you calling me to something more, to die to myself? We die when a child awakens in the middle of the night and instead of figuring out whose turn it is, we get up as quickly as possible so our spouse won't be wakened. We die when the money we earn is no longer ours, but the family's. It doesn't matter who earned it or what we think we deserve. What matters is what use will most bless our family. You see, any time, no matter who you are, married or not, when we make a choice to know that there is a choice between will I be selfish and live for myself or will I die to myself and live for another and for the kingdom of God? Will I say, not my will, but yours be done? We are living and walking in the footsteps of Jesus who came and was born to die. You see, I think a message from Matthew and Luke this season is that Jesus was born to die, to change the world forever. And we are born to die, to change the little corner of the world where God has placed us, that every time, and I mean it, this is significant, brothers and sisters, every time we choose to say, not my will, but yours be done, the kingdom of God expands in our little corner of the world. The real point of Christmas maybe isn't just Jesus' birth, or at least not only his birth. But maybe it's that Jesus was born to die, and so are we. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word to speak to the very center of our hearts. And Lord, there's so many choices we have every day to live for self or to die to self. May we be people who follow in your footsteps and die in a way that releases the very life, your life, to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.